While the idea of being famous has always been appealing, the pursuit and desire kicked into overdrive when in 1980 the movie Fame was released. Nominated for several Academy Awards, for which it won Best Original Score and Song, and with a hit title song that still gets played today, oh, and there was a TV series, and there was a remake, and stage musicals, the movie Fame will indeed live forever. And if you're my age, this is just another depressing form of High School Musical. <laughs> this is 80s Movie Guide. A guide to what's wrong with your parents. I'm Riley Roberts. And I'm Tara McNamara. Fame follows a class of students at New York's High School of Performing Arts from auditions through four years to graduation. Yeah, and they have a lot of issues. Yeah, they is all that, do. <laughs> is that any different? Well, the question is, is that any different from high school today? I mean, no. obviously you've got a performing world, so the world's a little different. But I mean, this movie is just another, um, just more proof of why New York sucks. <laughs> well, New York, <laughs> I think New York in the '80s, definitely. I mean, New York. What's interesting to me is that this movie is made by Alan Parker. Okay, this is the director, and then he rewrote the script. And he was a Brit, and he actually had made Bugsy Malone, and then there was this whole sort of British, I don't know, this, this I wouldn't call it a full invasion, but David Putnam had come in and was trying to fill Hollywood with Brits. And so Alan Parker was one, and then Adrian Lyne of Foxes is the other, and that Alan Parker made Bugsy Malone in the 70s. And then he, he went on to make a, another notable film called Midnight Express. And then he makes this film the same year that they're making Foxes, which is, uh, and, and then essentially the Bugsy Malone crew that are all Brits get used in both films, you know? So you actually see, it's the same cinematographer so that you kind of see that haziness in both of these films that we saw. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, is, it is gritty. And I do think that, New York is a character in in fame, just like the San Fernando Valley is a character in Foxes. It it you know it's, it's not just a landscape; it lives and breathes. It's a part of the film. Yes. But it does not make me want to live there. It is one of the many films that make me go, nope, not interested in living in New York. Yeah. When the when the older guy was like, I didn't really like L.A. that much. I was like, well, it looked like you got more work than you did here. That's what I thought. I was like, dude, you're waiting tables now. What are you talking about? You had a pilot. That's a big deal. As soaps? <laughs> yeah, I know. And they were like, oh. But that's part of what I think is so fascinating about this film. So it's called Fame. And it's not about chasing fame, though. It's about the pursuit of craft. It's about the dedication and the hard work that it takes to follow your dreams. And, um, and, and really the reason they wound up calling it Fame was because that their original title was Hot Lunch, which is the name of the song that they sing when they start like spilling out, you know, when, when they kind of jam and have a big jam session. Um, but, and, and they had to come up with a new title because it turns out Hot Lunch uh, was a porn term for <laughs> oral sex. Oh. And, and then while he was like, while, while David, uh, while Alan Parker was scouting locations, I guess a taxi went by that advertised a porn called Hot Lunch. <laughs> and then it turned out that the, one of the most famous porn uh, performers at the time was named Al Parker. So like, there was just a lot of reasons not to go with the title Hot Lunch. Right. And so, um, which I do kind of like hot lunch as an oral sex term, and I think it should be brought back. I don't think that should be brought back at all. <laughs> but anyway, so then they were searching for other titles, and um, and they were not good. Like, um, 
what was it, like Pizzazz and Razzmatazz or something like that, Pizzazz, I mean, it was not good. Like, they're old titles, Neon Dreams, they were not good titles. So fame definitely was the way to go. But that's not really what the movie is about at all. And the students who went to the performing arts school um, at the time were actually kind of like their their feeling was that the movie brought about something that didn't exist that it made it seem like the school was about chasing fame and and that's really not what they do there at all which is part of the reason that the New York uh school board didn't want them to use the performers you know they didn't want them to use the performers they didn't want them to use the school they didn't want them to advertise the school we're like we don't need publicity we have more than enough applicants we can't handle it and sure enough after this, you know, applicants to this performing arts school and all the others that exist, like, just surged, you know, because everybody's like, oh, yeah. And that's, I think, when we're getting to what's wrong with your parents, fame kind of starts the beginning of this follow your dreams mentality. And there's nothing wrong with that. It, it changes through the decades, though, of what that meant. But there starts to be an idea of, wait a second, I could become a dancer? I, you know, because before, previous generations, the parents are like, okay, you're going to be an accountant, you're going to be a secretary, you could be a teacher, you know, <laughs> maybe you could run a business, open yourself a pizzeria. Like, these were jobs that you could do. And, but there was, like, if you told your parents you wanted to be a professional dancer, like, that was not a good conversation that you were going to have. They were not going to be supportive. <laughs> you were probably going to have to run away to New York to pursue it. It wasn't going to go well. Um, so, so interestingly, while the film really talks about the hard work and dedication, it's fascinating that here we are 40 years later, and the pursuit of fame is, I mean, everything that your generation thinks about. Yeah. That's all we think about. Yeah. Especially now with TikTok, people and Instagram, people are just getting famous, like, for no reason. Yeah. Like, it's getting annoying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's YouTube, reality. I mean, I think it started with reality shows. You didn't necessarily need to have any talent. You could just be on a reality show. Then it became YouTube. Then it became social media. And TikTok's just a, another form of social media, <laughs> you know, maybe slightly more creative. But that's... um, And, and so now you guys don't need to have put in hard work, or at least it doesn't seem like it. I, I tend to think that these people who are really making it more often than not are putting in the hard work. I'd like to believe that. Um, but, you know, when we have one of our most successful, you know, wim female entrepreneurs being Kylie Jenner, I mean, that's, that's a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so we've really come a long way in 40 years. Yep. Uh, so... What was your take on that aspect of, you know, of the film and, and how it compares to now? Like, with all the hard work and sweat you see them putting in and the countless hours. Well, I was thinking, like, I want to go here because, like, you, cause, like, you could learn anything you wanted to learn. Yeah. And you have to do good, girls, mm -hmm. you're out. Mm -hmm. So you could, like, play every single instrument ever. And then you could, like, you don't even have to do anything with it. You could just, like, have that as, like, your talent. Mm -hmm. Like your special thing. Can I say that it seemed like it was an off year for the uh, drama department in yeah. the fame school? All the people who got in. So the girl who's auditioning with the O.J. Simpson towering inferno. I'm waiting at the elevator. Now I'm getting in the elevator. She got into the school. Yeah. Doris got into the school. Doris. How did... Ugh, I know. I was like the most annoying character in movies maybe ever. I was like, she's like the Gabriella of a high school musical except she's ugly. <laughs> 
And then Sharpay is black and got sexually assaulted, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, well, I, I, I have to tell you when that scene where Coco, you know, you know, she goes, she has all the excitement and hope. Some director has seen her thinking about casting her in a movie and there's certainly stories like this that existed for real, you know, where that could happen. And, you know, he'd seen her in something. He, you know, thought she had a certain look. Come to my apartment. And the thing that we know now, and, like, she gets to the apartment, right, and there's all the red flags, right? This is in somebody's seedy apartment. Run. There's, you know, you know it's, it's bad news. We know that. But the truth is, is that this has only just stopped. With the Harvey Weinstein scandal, we learned that until the Harvey Weinstein scandal, they were continuing to have auditions in hotel rooms, you know, in, in bedrooms, you know? And so for an actress to encounter something like this wasn't necessarily out of the norm. Yeah. And then just since we're on it, I mean, the whole, you know, porno thing is, you know, it turns out he's a porno director, right? So he has the setup. He has the camera equipment. It's not that he's not a director. <laughs> he's just... And I don't know the films. Honestly, I don't know the films he was referring to. So I don't know if they were, like, French, sexy French films. I would... I mean, I don't know. But um, regardless, you know, obviously Coco's like, oh, yes, I know that film. I know that film. But when I saw that part of the movie... So I think I was 13 or 14. I was babysitting... And, I mean, I was not allowed to watch rated R movies. My parents did not allow me to do that. But, you know, I'm babysitting. They have HBO or Cinemax. And I'm alone. I mean, I used to do something where it would be, like, I'd try to watch a rated R movie. And then, like, I, I would hear a noise. And I'd be sure that... And I'd, like, quickly flip the channel because I didn't want the family I was babysitting for to know that I was watching some, like, raunchy rated R movie. So I remember... So I was all alone. The kids are asleep. I'm watching this film. And that scene made me sick like literally I a hollow in my stomach that I can still feel like it was so sickening to me what happened to her and in in when in watching it this time it seemed less believable like you're thinking get out of there don't take your shirt off but yeah I think we've all been in that situation where uh, well I don't know that we've all been in that situation I've been in that situation I think you can relate when you're you feel trapped and a man or a person in authority is telling you to do something that you know you don't feel comfortable with and you're just not sure and it doesn't, you know. And I think it is realistic, you know. But but here's what's extra creepy, right? After he tells Coco to take her shirt off, and she does, and she's crying. Yeah. Put your thumb in your mouth like a schoolgirl. Yeah. And then we're back to this weird what the heck was going on in 1980 that we had all of this sexualization of little girls where the little girl appeal is what is hot. I don't know. People still have that. It's a virgin thing. It's like a thing of like, they're because they're pure. Like men have a weird thing with that. It's gross. Mm-hmm. I don't understand it. Yeah. At all. Yeah. But... I- well, I don't know. I mean, I would think, I would hope at the very least that it went away with the John Benet Ramsey thing where we, right, she was a, you don't know who that is. This happened in the 90s. But um, she was a uh, little girl who was in pageants and she was murdered in her house. And then, you know, we start to see through her pageant world that she was like six, but she was in full makeup 
you know, big hair, wearing things. You know, their, her parents in the pageant world had dressed her up like a like an adult, kind of like we see in, interestingly enough, in Bugsy Malone, where it's kids pretending to be gangsters. But but also, you know, we, we just see this. It's all through the 70s, like all through the 70s, this embrace of not just like youth, but like very young girls being sexually attractive. Yeah. So that was just like one note of, ew. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... What what were your... I mean, I, I don't really know that I think that this movie, other than The Pursuit of Fame, uh, which I believe started more responsibly, um, really affected Generation X in that negative of a way. But I do think that it does have a lot uh, that you can go to to look to for history and what was going on at the time. Um, what were some of the many issues that you saw in the film... Okay. <laughs> well, first of all, Montgomery, the gay kid. Yeah. Um, literally, like, I felt so bad for him the yeah. entire time. And no one gave, like, two shits. Yeah. Like, and then this kid comes in who's, like, who bullies kids all the time. And he comes in crying because his little sister got attacked. Not him, but his little sister. Right. And he's crying and freaking out about how gross the Bronx is and this girl comes up to him and just like starts making out with him yeah while Montgomery's like wow every time I let my feelings out people just like ignore it like they straight up he'd be like wow my mom I haven't seen my mom in years or whatever have you seen her or whatever no like no one gave they're just like no yeah I think um uh well it's interesting you took it that way I didn't I certainly didn't think there was anything wrong with Ralph's being upset that his sister was attacked, but... No, I'm not saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, and he had already kissed Doris, so we were, we were aware that that relationship... I know, relationship... but that was weird. I know. That whole thing was like, seriously, you two? No. no. Yeah, yeah. First of not all, believable. it was you two? No. And then second of all, it was, this ma- this man is having a mental breakdown because his little sister just got attacked by some creep, and your first choice is to come kiss him everywhere and like start yeah. making... Yeah. I was just like, that's just, like, not what you would do. Like, <laughs> that's not what I would do, at yeah. least. Yeah. I would, like, hug him. Like, he, like, the... Right. Affectionate, maybe that's the 80s, like, moving from where now we would do a hug <laughs> and a comforting, you know, hand squeeze. <laughs> I don't know, but then Montgomery sex. left his own apartment right. so that they could be alone together. And probably have sex. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, dang. Well, I thought for sure Montgomery, I mean, it has been, it has been like probably 36 years since I saw this movie in its entirety. Um, so I was like, okay, Montgomery's going to kill himself. Like, yeah, me no too. Way I thought he's surviving the exact this film. Same thing. I, and I was surprised that no one did kill themselves. I know, even, even Lisa. Yeah. Like, when, I mean, when Lisa was going to kill herself, I was like, come on, girl. You didn't even, like, come yeah, on. You are not killing yourself over this. And yeah. then it was like, psych. But, um, yeah, no, Montgomery... Well, here's what's interesting to look back at. Okay, so Montgomery's going to a performing arts school filled with dancers and actors. So being gay can't be unusual there. Yeah, right? Uh, why is that? But I think that his the, the issues with him being homosexual were more for the audience because I remember, again, seeing that storyline in the film and it was like... <gasps> he's gay? You know, 
was I mean moviegoers that was still shocking I don't know why I don't know why because you know I mean we had the village people I mean you know but I I think that you see uh this you know I mean I I, I think that probably in New York and LA and San Francisco there was like a a hearty gay scene and uh, but I'm in the sure. meantime, but but the rest of the country maybe wasn't quite as on board with that because um, right. I I just remember yes if guys being teased about being gay was you know the the best burn you could do in the eighties and so Doris is saying don't say you know don't come out don't make that your monologue don't make that your shared painful memory you know because. Ralph is going to annihilate you. And then, of course, he does. And then I'm like, well, Ralph's the one wearing the women's lingerie. I know. How is this working? Like, you know, but bullies always manage to do that. I don't know. You know? Uh, I was really confused. There. So, first thing that's wrong, Montgomery is um, underappreciated. Right. Second thing, the black dancer kid. Um... First of all, with the blonde girl, they never, like, went into that relationship. They just showed, like, him going into her house and kissing her a couple times. But they never really showed anything. Yeah. He also would just run around the school slapping girls' asses while looking gay as hell in a, (laughs) like, a, uh, what's it called? Crop top. What's that, like? Oh, yeah. Just, like, a half shirt? A frill. Oh. Is that what it's called? No, the, like, what are... Like the stocking kind oh, of... Oh, mesh. Yeah, yeah, the mesh crop tops. Right, right. And stuff like... And like pink and like roller skates and yeah. like hats. And I was just like, how are you hard? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you're not hard. Like, you look gay as hell. Like... <laughs> well, Gene Anthony Ray was gay. Um, was then it, why was he making out with everyone? I mean, or maybe he's bi. I don't know, but I mean, I know Gene Anthony Ray, the actor. My understanding is at oh, least that he actor. was gay. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, again, is that the dance community or is that, I don't know, but oh my gosh, did he have an amazing body. No, I know, for sure. Phew, dang. <laughs> that was amazing. For um, a homeless guy, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he well, and what's interesting about Gene Anthony Ray and Leroy is that they were looking to for someone to play this character. He was one of the last people cast. He was uh, discovered on the streets of Harlem breakdancing. Turns out he had attended the performing arts school and had been kicked out for being disruptive. Right. <laughs> so it really fit. And he, I think, even told Alan Parker in the audition, which, by the way, he skipped school to go to the audition. Very Leroy. But, uh, but yeah, it is. It, so what was fascinating to me, too, is that they have an interracial relationship between him and Hillary. And I think the reason that they didn't go more into these things, I figure, you know, they didn't give you any meaningful looks into anybody. You have to cover four years and a whole lot of characters. So I think you just get glances, little snippets of their life through the four years. So you see Hillary antagonizing Coco that she's going to take Leroy. Then obviously she does. Yeah, and Leroy's there. Yeah. Hearing all of it, and he's like, yep. <laughs> uh, Hillary is, you know, the rich girl who doesn't need any of this, right? Dedicated to craft, hates her stepmother hates her rich life, and you know that she's with Leroy. I mean, I don't know. Like, I think that there... It seems like she was into Leroy, but there definitely was a I'm going to get back at my parents element of it. 
And then that leads us to the abortion. Is that what she was doing? Yeah. Oh. I was so lost with that scene. Yeah. I was like, why is she giving this whole monologue? And then her therapist just asks how much it's going to be. I was like, that's rude. Yeah, she was in the... I mean, I think what was confusing (laughs) is it looked to me like the the room that she was in where she's crying to the nurse uh, about the, about, you know, she, she, it looked like her own house. And so that's where I got confused. You know, there was a big column, dramatic staircase. It looked to me like it was her penthouse, you know, that she lived in with her family. So I was like, what's going on? And then when it shows the nurse and she's like, and that's why I can't have a baby or, you know, there's no room to have a baby. And then the nurse says, how much, or how do you want to pay for this? Um, so I would say, I think it's indicative of, of, we see a lot of movies in the early 80s that have a female character get an abortion. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Um, we've covered a couple, it's just not coming to my brain right now, but. Um, uh, Dirty Dancing. Um, Dirty Dancing, Last American Virgin, which we haven't seen yet. Um, but but this comes up, you know, there's just some, and, and it's just like this. It's Dirty Dancing, there's more of a focus on it, even though that's not um, baby's story. But usually the abortion, some like wedged in storyline and then you get an abortion and then life goes on. You know, that's how these generally, we never see Hillary again after she gets the abortion. I'm like, did she die? I mean, what happened? She was going to San Francisco. Right. But I I would say that for people who are uh, evangelical or or anti-choice, you know, that they would see this film and think, Okay, you know, here they they would say that the depiction of abortion in film and in kind of that, and then they got an abortion and then they went on with their life thing. They would see that as having affected a generation of encouraging abortion, but I think in this case in particular, it's more realistic. Yeah, in which she's this isn't a choice she wants to make. It's obviously not light to her that she's making it. But she's a teenager. She has her whole life in front of her. She studied her entire life to be a dancer. And, you know, this is a choice that she has to make or else her life will go off the rails. I I think Ralph is an important character. Uh, By the way, can I just say, though, that I thought Doris was the most annoying character in the sense of why would you follow her when Coco and Bruno are the most interesting characters? And by the way, why did they not have a romance? They kept yeah. hinting like maybe it was going to happen. They're the ones who should clearly be together, but maybe for professional reasons since they didn't. I don't know. But I was disappointed that one didn't come through. Um, but regardless, Ralph might be the juiciest character. There's the most going on with him, right? We yeah. learn he's very angry and there's a reason that he's so hostile, that he's so um, negative, that he's uh, just always lashing out, right? Because he had this horrible thing happen with his own family that he felt his dad putting his sister's head through something and causing some sort of permanent brain injury. Um, The scene with, in the church, Okay, so we kind of talked about... So he has this thing with his sister. The sister is attacked by a junkie. And it's not clear what has happened. But I think that what we see throughout the film... What we see with Ralph, like... It was like the one time I wished I was with my friend who's bilingual and speaks Spanish. Because they were talking in Spanish and they weren't putting the 
um, subtitles. Subtitles, I know, and I was like, I don't know what they're saying. Usually, I have Celeste here to be like, what they say, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't, so I don't know what happened. Yeah. But then he said she got attacked, but I thought I heard, like, their conversation sound like she was, like, raped or something. I mean, the way, especially, well, it was weird because the priest, like... Because well, that's why he was like, we need to get her to a doctor. Yeah. So, so then, that's what it was like. So the, you think if there was a physical, I, that's what was confusing to me. If there was a physical mark on her body or something had happened, I, I'm confused. Because then the priest is like, well, I think she's fine. And I get it that the priest means on the exterior and there's a trauma. I, I don't know what happened there. You know, it did seem like there was something sexual, something molesty, something, you know, we never see her face. We don't know if... She's wounded in any way, but, um, but, you know, I mean, Ralph is, starts speaking out against the church. And uh, I think that we see, this is another thing that we really see in the film, uh, that at this time there's the seventies films are really gritty. And, um, that was a result of just how, of the era that people were very angry with society, with government, with the way that, Everything around them was going. It was not a good time in history in the 70s. And that was reflected in cinema. And we're coming out of that in 1980. And you see this grittiness and this um, cynicism, really. And Ralph is the exclamation point of the cynicism in this film. He is deeply cynical. There seems to be this disconnect with Ralph where he doesn't see his drug use having any connection to this junkie that, that you know litter the streets around his where he lives and he obviously lives in poverty and I, I find that interesting but the the drug use was very of the era I mean it's still of the era but the idea that he's in you know he's he's in the comedian world he's at comedy clubs and there were plenty of drugs and I thought that was uh an important thing to include um but also weird to me that he doesn't see the connection. And I think that was, I think now we'd be more inclined to connect one to the other, or at least in a movie you would. <laughs> and there, there is no connection there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also the scene where he encourages Doris to get high. Mm-hmm. And she does. And then that is a positive portrayal of Pot because the you know, uptight Doris loosens up, takes her outer top off. <laughs> Like, oh, she's going crazy. She's wearing her tank top. Uh, go- Doris bothered the fuck out of me. Yeah. She, and her mom. She was annoying. She didn't even realize what her mom was forcing her to do, either. Yeah. I guess, like, that was, like, totally not there. Like, like your mom was like, we got the part, like, or we got in, and we did this, and you, and, like, she's taking pictures of her audition, like, freak. Yeah. Well, she was supposed to be a stage mom. No, I know, but... I didn't know what a professional children's school was because she says, they said, why are you auditioning? We can't afford a professional children's school. I thought, what's that? I looked it up. So that is actually a similar school that you have to pay for where the high school performing arts was a, a New York City school and would be free. And then that was the big advantage. And that is why... You see people from all walks of life, uh, class, ethnicity in one school. And that is true to how the high school performing arts was. I don't know if it still is. but uh, where And interestingly, in the stuff that I read, um, one of the things Alan Parker noted, but I read it from students, is there's just no... There, is, there were never racial tensions. 
there was never any issues about class. And Parker likened it to the fact that it was because people were so exhausted and busy and focused on their own lane that they just, you know, to get into these squabbles, why? Yeah. Obviously, it took a lot of work to get into the school, and nobody wanted to lose that ticket. Um, So, anything else strike you about the film? The fact that Ralph doesn't want to be named Raul, and how he's, like, hiding his Puerto Rican part of him, that Mm -hmm. was kind of a... Yeah. It's the same reason I think Doris changes her name. You want to be more exotic, but... The Freddie Prinze... So I sent you a Wikipedia yeah. thing before we watched on who Freddie Prinze was so you'd understand. But I think there's a couple of things that we take away from that storyline. One, when it's about representation, right? On one hand, it's something that Hollywood is trying to address now, finally getting on top of the lack of representation of minorities. So there weren't many Puerto Rican personalities out there crushing it in the entertainment world. And so Freddie Prinze was really somebody that was looked up to, especially in the Puerto Rican community, in the Hispanic community in general, but definitely in the Puerto Rican community. And so his suicide was very upsetting then to people in that community who felt a connection to him, especially because he was also from New York. And he really did go to that school in real life. That that whole thing is true. At the same time, Freddie Prince changed his name to sound less Hispanic. And that is something that um, lots of Jewish performers, directors uh, would do, is change their name to sound less Jewish, less ethnic, more mainstream, more like a movie star, more like a comedian, someone safe that mainstream America would accept. And that's why he won't be go by Raul Garcia and said, I'm Ralph Garcia. And I mean, but Doris changes her name too, but... She's lame. She's not Dominique. I mean, there's no Dominique. world in which anybody's going to accept her as Dominique DuPont, but like... Her haircut is so bad. I just wanted her to like straighten her hair like the entire movie. Yeah. I just just straighten it. Yeah. It'll look so much better. Just straighten it. <laughs> I don't know if they had straighteners available then. They had so many different hair products at the time. I think she could find something. There is some casting that I don't think would hold up today. One is that the character was written to be Jewish. She was written to be a Barbara Streisand type character. And and, and then they cast Maureen Teefy. And said, well, I guess we'll make you Irish. I mean... (laughs) Like they do with every white girl for some reason. Yeah, the put-upon Irish. I mean, now I feel like, as someone who's Irish, you know, we we do lose jobs because now nobody wants the Irish (laughs) to do entertainment jobs. You want someone of color. But I accept this is a necessary turn of events, and I I accept that, and I understand that. Um, But yeah, they make... So instead, she's Irish. And then Barry Miller who plays Ralph, is not Puerto Rican. He is Jewish in real life. And so, and by the way, I looked at, I mean, this was very typical of Hollywood. To be like, well, you look like some, you know, you're, you're dark, dark-haired, your skin's a little, little more olive-toned. You'll, we'll have you play Middle Eastern. We'll have you play Italian. We'll have you, you know, and they would cast actors who were not remotely, you know, who were white actors in ethnic roles. Just being like, oh, no one will notice. It's fine. <laughs> no, and what's funny is that... Um, but the, 
I don't want to sound racist right now, but only ethnic people notice. Like, I was watching, literally yesterday, I was watching Supernatural with Celeste. And she, like, and they, the two guys come up and they start talking to this um, old Hispanic woman. Like, mm-hmm. and she's just speaking Spanish or whatever. And Celeste is like, ugh, I can't believe they used an Indian woman for that. Or, like, a Native American or something. And mm-hmm. I was like, What? She's speaking perfect Spanish. She's like, do you hear that Spanish? She did not know that by heart. <laughs> like, that is, like, script Spanish. And I was like, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> she looks like an, an old Mexican woman. She's like, no, that's a Native American right there. Well, this is part of the debate on accuracy in casting. Because I watched the whole movie. It didn't occur to me that he wasn't Puerto Rican. I mean, now that it's been pointed out he's Jewish, I'm like, okay, you know, I can see that. But I, it didn't, I, I didn't, didn't think about I it. I didn't but see it's the Puerto we're Rican. Not, because him. we're not, we're not, you, yes, when it's your own representation and it's misrepresented, but then what it does is perpetuate a false idea of what that ethnicity or gender is. You know, I mean, in Shakespeare's time, they had men playing women. And... Yeah. I, I feel offended at that, <laughs> you know? I mean, I don't want men to play women. I want women to have the opportunity to play women. We want Native Americans to have the opportunity to play Native Americans. It's so rare that these roles come up where you could cast someone of the correct ethnicity that it is, uh, it, it, it's frustrating to see them then go, oh, we're going to cast this white actor. I mean, the worst one was uh, Emma Stone in... Aloha, which was this Cameron Crowe movie that was bad that came out, I don't know, five years ago or something, where they had her cast as half Asian. And you're like, okay. I mean... She's got the biggest eyes. I'll take half Asian, but on... You could could pass that with a lot of actors, but not Mm red-haired, blue-eyed... Emma Stone. Big-eyed Emma Stone. <laughs> Emma, Stein's, Emma Stone is known for her, like, big, like, right. butterfly eyes or whatever. Like, they're yeah. huge. Yeah. She, she has bug eyes. I know. She's like a Precious Moments doll in real life. She's, like, got these huge... That was a 70s reference, sorry. <laughs> these huge, ginormous, almost cartoonish eyes. Like a Disney princess. Cameron... What's her name? She's blonde. About your age. Cameron... Diaz? Yes. Cameron Diaz could play half Asian over Emma Stone. Is Cameron Diaz (laughs) Hispanic? No. Well, her last name's Hispanic. She's hella white to me. Well, she is hella white. She's got blue eyes, blonde hair. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. (laughs) Worth researching. Uh, Things we've never thought about before. (laughs) You just accept. Um, All right, so the last thing I want to say about fame is that, uh, one, it helped usher in leg warmers as a fashion accessory. The other thing it brought in was the dance movie. So, um, essentially, we had Saturday Night Fever in 1977, and so that was an authentic dance movie, and that was huge. It was a massive, massive hit, and... Then we started seeing some of these Thank God It's Friday and Can't Stop the Music as a result of Saturday Night Fever. I wouldn't say those encouraged any more dance movies, but when fame comes out, it sort of takes it a different direction and be like, okay, even though there's more that they cover besides dancing, it did renew this interest. And I remember this. There became this... um, One, there's an interest in dance movies. We get, after that, uh, uh, White Nights, Footloose, Flashdance... 
uh, break in and break into Electric Bugaloo, um, uh, a chorus line movie. So there, we every year we would get one or two dance movies. So that did help kind of usher that in. But uh, there was also a renewed interest in ballet. And I don't know if that started in the 70s and maybe that was part of it and it was just... But I, as, a, as a kid um, in the 80s, I remember having an interest in ballet uh, and reading books about it, which interestingly, in my opinion, is what helped lead to the anorexia, I would say an anorexic movement that happened among teens in the 80s, which came out of ballet because in ballet, she says, um, right, mm-hmm. Hillary says, I'm not going to starve myself for Balanchine and ABT, the American Ballet Theater, I think is what that stands for, uh, because you did. You would have to go and eat almost nothing. I mean, you would eat so little. They wanted you so skinny. And you've worked that hard your whole life to be a dancer at that level, and then you get there, and then they would. So I I remember reading a book that I'll never forget. It probably was the most influential thing in creating my own body image issues. And it was about a ballet dancer and how she was having to starve herself, but how she found fat disgusting. So she found breasts disgusting. Any fat on her body she thought was just, like she would just obsess about it and want to get it off her body. And so that really stuck with me that I read that at a, a, you know, age where I was impressionable and was like, ooh, yeah, fat, ick. (laughs) And never, I mean... And then, and then, you know, whatever my own form was. I mean, I remember wearing shorts all the time. Because we, as we've discussed, I've always been booty blessed. <laughs> and so even when I was 10 years old and 11 years old, I would wear shorts over my rear end. Because it was plumper than the usual 10-year-old white girl. Um, but, but all of this, you know, just kind of helped fuel it. <laughs> all right. Well, I think fame is an accurate look at 1980. Uh, to some degree, and uh, it's its 40th anniversary this year, and I think it's also, I think it, we pivot from that, I mean, it's a musical, and you kind of, it doesn't feel like a musical, because it's so different, because it's so authentic, the, yeah. the music and dance comes from the uh, real, the real situations that occur in the movie, instead of it being like High School Musical. I mean, High School Musical does the same thing. Oh no, they stop and they're like gonna. I mean, Zac they Efron were having and flash mobs. Okay, but Zac Efron and Vanessa Hudgens like just break down and sing a song to each other. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, yeah, but they also have the pian like the piano scenes where like they're singing to each other and like it looks like he's gonna kiss her and then yeah. he doesn't. And All right, like, I'm just saying it's different and than then a someone Kenny comes in and starts clapping and it's like that was great. Why don't you audition or what? Yeah, yeah. They had all... It was literally High School Musical, but like 80s. Okay. With but, depressing, depressing things. But, but depressed, but very depressed. All right. I think that covers it. We've now gone full circle. I'm Tara McNamara. I'm Riley Roberts. This is 80s Movies, A Guide to What's Wrong with Your Parents. Follow us on social media. And check our website. At 80s Movie Guide. Catch you next time. I've been a